difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. On last week's show, we talked about family dysfunction in suburban Connecticut in the early 1970s. Now we move forward a decade to talk about more family dysfunction, this time in London in the 1980s, when a different set of values lays siege to a family of four. In The Nest, writer-director Sean Durkin's long-awaited follow-up to Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, Jude Law and Carrie Coon star as Rory and Allison O'Hara, an unhappily married couple with two teenage children, Sam, Allison's daughter from a previous marriage, and Benjamin, the son they had together. As the film opens, Rory and Allison have already moved four times in ten years in search of a permanent home, but Rory's restlessness is forcing a more radical change than usual. He connects with an old boss in London and believes he can make a fortune off the newly deregulated markets. That is, if he can bring an American-style culture change to a conservative British company. When the O'Haras arrive in England, Rory has rented them a massive old estate in the countryside, which heightens their sense of isolation in a foreign land after moving from a normal suburban American neighborhood. He tries to sell his wife on the idea of having a stable on their property for her beloved horse, and he enrolls the kids in nice schools, but all of them struggle to find their bearings. In the meantime, Rory's get-rich-quick aggressiveness starts to rub people the wrong way, especially when his stories about his own success are revealed to be a capitalist mirage. We'll talk about how this family unit collapses after the break. There's an opportunity. Where? London. This would be our fourth move in 10 Turn years. Backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is a fresh start. How about this? You shouldn't be working for someone else. Be your own boss. Build your own place. <laughs> own your own horses. Something doesn't feel right. It's not your job to worry. You leave that to your husband. It scares me that you actually think that. I saw some deposits you made. It's nowhere near what you're spending. Don't worry. I have a huge check coming in at the end of the month. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. Is it? Okay. So, usual question. The Nest. What did you think? I dug Keith? it. I'll go ahead. Oh, here we go. <laughs> now, I, I was literally going to say, uh, Keith, you're the tiebreaker here. What do you think? Oh, I'm a tiebreaker? I didn't realize people were on different ends of it. I dug it. I, I thought it was good. I think in some ways, when we get into the comparisons, it's going to f- diminish a little bit because I, I'm not sure this movie really lands, uh, sticks the landing, but I love the setup. I think the performances are really good. The atmosphere is thick and the style is you know really uh, disciplined in a way that I thought made it really compelling. And I thought the kind of way it peeled back the layers of Jude Law's character a, a little bit at a time really worked for me. By the end, he's pretty much laid bare in some really unflattering ways but i I liked a good soundtrack too really good soundtrack tasha 
oof, you guys. Just <laughs> oof. Uh, oh. Nothing Nothing Keith just said is wrong. I mean, this really is a disciplined film. I can't fault the, the filmmaking. I can't speak very well to the cinematography because the screening version that we got was just so low res. Everything was uh, very chunky and dim and difficult to see in some places. But I really liked the acting. Carrie Coon is the goat. Like on a formalistic level, I can't flaw this movie. And I just did not care for a moment of it. I think fundamentally, it, it it comes down to like, this is just the wrong time for me to be watching a movie about a man who effectively destroys his family, because being a millionaire is just not enough for him. He wants to be able to consume more recklessly and ridiculously. And he's disappointed that he can't live like the ultra rich. Like, that's just... I spent a lot of the last episode talking about relatability in Ang Lee's films, and very little of this film was relatable to me. I wanted to smack Jude Law's character most of the time. Now, if you've got an unlikable character who creates drama through hubris, like that can be a really good story. That can be a really satisfying story in a way. But really early in this film, he wakes his wife up in the morning to say, hey, by the way, I think we should move to London. And everything that I've told you in the past was a lie, but I expect you to be on board with this instantly. And the second she pushes back, he attacks her. Uh, he like dismisses her as unsupportive and unworthy. And she attacks him right back. And I just kind of had this, oh, it's going to be one of those films. You know, these two people already don't like each other. They already don't respect each other. They're not good communicators. This is not a good marriage. And nothing that we see from here on in is going to be like in any way enjoyable or satisfying. It's just going to be a long, slow disintegration. And the kind of more over-the-top and ridiculous the film got about the disintegration, the less connected to it, I felt. You know, the uh, the 13-style uh, freak-out on the, the daughter's part, the son out of nowhere kind of coming in with, I was so bullied I had to physically attack another kid. We're never going to explore any of that at all. I want to say, like, this may be one of the nerdier comparisons I've ever brought onto this show, but this whole movie reminded me of an episode of Star Trek Voyager, where the uh, holographic doctor decides he wants a family, and he invents himself a perfect holographic family uh, that all, like, love and support him no matter what he does. And one of the other characters says, this isn't what families are like, and she goes in and reprograms it, so all of his family members end up with huge, outsized, ridiculous, dramatic problems, culminating in one of them uh, dying. And it's just it's meant to just punish him for the hubris of wanting a perfect family and like punish him for not understanding drama. And that's how I felt about every moment of this movie. See, it reminded me of the, of the episode of Star Trek Voyage where Michael McKeon was the fear clown, because here's why. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have nowhere to take that. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> it's too bad, because I really wanted to hear this thesis. <laughs> Scott, I am given to understand you love I, this movie. I cannot compare it any, to any Star Trek Voyager <laughs> episodes, because I've seen none. I loved it. So we're definitely on opposite ends of this a little bit. I think it's got that you know, borderline films style that Durkin comes from the, from the same school of filmmakers. He and Antonio Campos and um, Josh Mond, who did James White, they all kind of came up together and all sort of adopted a very cool way of making films. Cool, like as in cold, as Kubrickian or, or like Michael Haneke or something. And, and uh, there's a lot of that here. I mean, this is not the warmest 
film by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the house itself, this estate, has this incredibly powerful, imposing presence. I mean, one of the films that we are initially going to pair this with that Durkin cited as influence was The Shining, because it's about this family that's already in dire straits, sort of having this sort of last ditch attempt to come together in extreme isolation and in this location that kind of brings out the worst of uh, the husband character in particular. Uh, So there's that element too that I think is really strong. But what was interesting to me, and this is of course why The Ice Storm came up after I, I watched it and then that was the comparison we went with, is just how much the values of the time and the and the desires of the time fuel the Jude Law character and, and kind of set this film in motion. How this need to have more than what he's got. Like they could have, they could have been fine. They, you know, who knows what kind of business he was doing when the film opens in the suburbs. I mean, they're already in a little bit of trouble, enough trouble to where, you know, Carrie Coon's character has to, you know, kind of keep her own money because she knows that he's not stable. But there is a sense of, there is a sense of restlessness and also that sense of need of, of having to, even fake dramatically, you know, a lifestyle that they that they can't afford, that they must aspire to. That is Rory's entire purpose is to live up to his own bullshit. And so I, I thought it was really interesting to build a drama and build a, uh, this marriage around a character who has that type of ambition, which seems so connected to the 80s and what values people really did seem to have at that time, what that decade, you know, sort of symbolized. So I thought it was a period piece that was quite strong and it gets everything right in the particulars too. I mean, the music is incredible and, you know, the decor is striking. I just thought it was a, I just think it's a really exquisitely rendered drama. I was a, I was a fan, just despite seeing it under horrible conditions. Well, part of what it, what made it work for me is the slow revelation of details about Jude Law's character. We, you know, it's easy to suspect from the beginning that he's, he's a, he's a phony, but the degree to which he is a phony and the degree to which Carrie Coon's character, Allison, um, knows he's a phony and knows he's, and knows he's been a phony all along and kind of goes along with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, I think each like new revelation thickens, uh, sort of thickens the stew here, if, if that's the right metaphor. I see where people would feel that, like particularly given his conversation, his very fraught conversation with his boss when he finds out what's going on with the deal that he brokered. But I really feel like most of what you needed to know was in that first fight in the bed when she is not on board with him breaking all of his promises and revealing that his past promises were lies. And his immediate response to that is to go on the attack. His immediate response to that is to dismiss everything that he's promised in the past as irrelevant and unimportant. And just not only try to get her on board immediately for this new thing, but belittle and gaslight her for not going along with it. I, I think the movie, in a way, tips its hand too early that he's he's just no good. He's a, he's a bad husband, though. <laughs> But he's an okay. He's a he's a good salesman to a certain extent, though. I mean, like, think about this. I mean, like, I think that his boss, the person he reconnects with in order to make this move to England, has a read on him, knows what he's about, and wants that. You know, it actually does want somebody with his sales quality, even though he knows there's a lot of nonsense, a lot of bluster behind it. And I think you can kind of apply that thinking to 
this marriage as well of, of Rory always making these promises that the next place that they go to, that the next job, the next gig or whatever is going to be the one that allows them to him to fulfill his destiny as a master of the universe that allows them to afford you know, a lifestyle that is extravagant, you know, that they can live in an estate with a stable and have horses and a nice soccer pitch for the kids. You know, I think there's Led Zeppelin a, stayed there. And let, let's have, I love that. <laughs> so, it's a good detail. So yeah, just, I mean, just, I think that this is just, this is somebody who is a salesman at heart. And I think there's a degree to which Allison accepts that that's what he has to do. And it's only as the film goes on that she utterly rejects it. I mean, I think before she can just kind of listen to him tell stories that are nonsense and think like there's a means to an end here. Like like he has to kind of like show off a little bit in order to you, you kind of fake it until you make it. It's kind of the way business works. But then, you know, he can only push that so far. And, and uh, you know, when, when he gets to a point where he's not landing the big deals he wants to make where the grand windfalls that he's been promising are not coming in uh, where everything is clearly not working out that's when it just finally hits a wall for the marriage and for the the family itself you get the feeling that has has he always been exactly that way because would his friend and boss have welcomed him back as warmly if uh, he'd always been that way or has he changed over the years Maybe it's a thing, too, where, again, he's responding to the times. I mean, there's such a emphasis on bringing American deregulation of the sort that we're seeing in the markets at that time to England. Like, this type of deal-making could infiltrate a more conservative market like Britain, and, and he could be the one, you know, Rory could be the one who's going to push this dodgy company towards incredible profits very quickly. So maybe, maybe it's a thing where he's just... An, has a sense of the ground changing under his feet and he's kind of trying to react to that and uh he does so in a way that ultimately ends up being self-destructive but not necessarily wrong i mean his sense of like where things are at doesn't seem off though he he's like a few years early for like for junk bonds just like you know total bullshit versus the uh, sort of like (laughs) half bullshit he's trying to sell (laughs) yeah right exactly i mean i i think we know that he's changed over the years because there was a point in time where he thought he had at least most of what he wanted there was a point in the time when he had a million dollars in the bank and he was living the way he wanted to be living and he thought it was never going to end that it was just going to be up from there so like one assumes that there was a point then when he was less hungry less desperate and less angry at everybody around him for not not getting with the program one has to assume there was a point where he didn't talk to his boss like a naughty child for not selling out his firm on uh terms that he himself negotiated apparently without reading them without looking at them without thinking about what they would mean i mean i think there was probably a point where he was uh young and ambitious and a rainmaker and just felt like the sky was the limit and now he's seeing that the limit is much much lower and he's just gotten more and more pretentious and more and more entitled and more and more desperate and nastier to the people about him i know i don't think i don't think it's possible that he was always exactly like this i think he always had the hunger and ambition and entitlement i just i don't think that 
he was so angry in the past. Well, we should also talk about where he comes from, which is very working class London. You know, we, we see his mother late in the film, mm. who hasn't even mentioned before. Uh, in the case of him, like very selectively presenting her for the information, him showing her a picture of his family of three is the first time we get the suggestion that the daughter is not his daughter, that she is a stepdaughter. Unless I missed that earlier in the film. Um, to so. me, that was a revelation in, in, that, in that moment. I believe he also has, the character has an Irish last name, right? Which kind of puts him at another remove in English society at the time. Um, so this is someone who reinvented himself almost like, you know, American style, but in England instead. And I think he's kind of hitting the limitations of, of that reinvention. The scene between him and his mom was pretty heartbreaking. Like I had very little sympathy for or engagement with him as a character. But that sequence with his mother, I mean, I was I was unbearably tense during the whole thing because I was waiting for the moment where he asked her for money. Like mm. his decision out of nowhere to go see her really made me think that he was going down that route. And it seems like maybe no, he he just he needs somebody to be impressed with him. And mm -hmm. nobody in his life is anymore. So maybe there's somebody he can go be flash around, uh, who will will actually be impressed. But that sequence of him just being so hungry for very specific reactions, and her having none of it is pretty intriguing and telling. And it's deeply emotional in the right ways uh, for all that very little big emotion is expressed during it. And I have a lot of respect both for what it tells us about his character without just like blatantly outright explaining it and kind of what it tells us about where where he's going and where he's certainly not going. Man, she is just so ungiving. Like the, the yeah. idea that she's no, she's not really interested in uh, meeting her grandson at this point because uh, he's been withheld from her for so long. She's not interested in budging from her comfortable place. Also tells you an awful lot about kind of the the neglect that he also grew up under, you know, not necessarily unsupervised, but uh, just in a household where generosity of spirit and generosity of love was probably not on offer. That's an aspect of his character that I think you can connect to is a neediness. Uh, he goes to her to try to get approval. And, he, and, he, and when he is showing the family around this estate, he is really trying so hard to get them excited, to give them what he thinks might be their dream home, you know, with this incredible space for the boy to play soccer, for this, this huge area for Allison to have her stable built and to have her horse imported and uh, things that they didn't have before, you know, and then, and then of course going to see his mother. I mean, there's, there's that neediness there, that eagerness to please um, he's trying, you know, and I guess that's maybe what a pitch man does is he's trying to um, persuade people and to, into feeling like they're going to be happier placing th their fate in his hands that he's going to lead them somewhere great and i think when you, you know, the place that you land with him with that incredible scene towards the end with the cab driver where he's kind of opening up to the cab driver to the point where the driver realizes huh i'm not actually going to get paid <laughs> to drive you all the way out here you just told me that you're kind of a bullshitter i'm just going to leave you out onto the road and you can walk home from here that's a humbling moment i mean it, you know and when when we see a character like that laid low in various points in the film as Rory is. I mean, yeah, you got to feel from just a little bit. Mm, 
Do no? we, though? A little bit. I mean, kind of in the broad abstract, I don't know if we do because uh, films like this are to some degree about the rise and fall and somebody getting punished for his behavior. And I feel like that sequence is kind of the comeuppance. There's a lot to be said in both of these movies. We kind of made fun a little bit of the symbolism, the, the heavy handedness of the symbolism in the ice storm. And I think the buried horse and the cab ride here are also just phenomenally heavy handed. Like I really enjoyed the cab scene for all the new things that it taught us and for the no nonsenseness of it. But the symbolism of it taking a working class person to just utterly see through him in a way that like the posh people he's perpetually trying to impress don't see through him and to call him to account and to punish him for it. Like it's satisfying on the one hand and on the other hand, it's like, that's a wee bit on the nose. Don't you think? Well, this happens after his would-be clients also see see through his nonsense as well. So he's got he's kind of lost his touch, if he ever had it. Well, we we don't know how much that would have happened if not for his wife like disavowing him, like like publicly calling him. We don't know whether the clients would have been aware that he was lying about the theater, for instance. We don't know if all of that is a reaction to her just full on going off the reservation and exposing him as a shallow liar. Like, if that happened in front of me, my first thought would be, well, do we want to be in business with somebody who lies so much and so well? Yeah. So I don't know whether it's true that they saw through him. It's not like that conversation that he has with his business partner was kind of a long time coming, you know, like the partner was saying, yeah, these guys are not buying your bullshit. You know, you don't need to be a part of this. And I think there's a sense that things are already just not working out in this company for Rory at that point in the movie, you know, and as for the horse, I mean, I, I get that that's a little heavy, but God, you know, it's just one of those kind of Hanukkah type, things of just like uh, especially the the burial of that horse the the thump the the hor- awful thud that it makes when it goes into the ground it's just like uh here we go we're we're very much in a in you know a borderline films production here before we move on i do want to circle back to wait you, were... wait, you want to keep talking about the dead horse tasha Can't... no I, I i feel like it would be beating a oh something uh <laughs> I, a good metaphor just completely fails to uh, to come to me here. You, you brought up the kind of the specter of the house, the kind of too big house that they're all in. And mm-hmm. I feel like Durkin does something really interesting with that, that I am very curious whether it was deliberate or whether there are some uh, relevant extra textuals there. Because we see so little of that house. We mm-hmm. see, we don't even see the entire front of it. We, we kind of see an occluded shot of a couple of arches and like part of the building that we can see between them. When we enter the house, we see kind of a few rooms that are off to the left. And then there's just a sense of a much larger space that we don't ever really enter. We get to go to their bedroom and the, the hallway outside their bedroom, but we don't get a sense of how it connects to the rest of the house. And I could so easily see that being because they only had permission to film in like one small disused area of this estate. Or I could see it being a very, very conscious decision to imply to you how much bigger this space is and how unnecessary it is how little they're using of it. There's just throughout every time they're moving through the house, I find myself thinking, I don't have a sense of this space. I just have a sense of wasted space. I have a sense Mm. of this being so much more than they need, which is, you know, his wife's immediate response when they get there 
and feels like a very proper response to moving a family of four into this space. But we never really get a sense of scale for how ridiculous it is. That's all left to our imagination. And I would love to know how much that was driven by necessity in filmmaking and how much it was deliberate just to kind of like play with our sense of scale, play with our sense of limitation, play with our sense of like dissociation within the space itself. It's one way or the other. I think it's just a really clever bit of filmmaking. Yeah, it's like that shining thing too. I mean, just like this is a family that when they arrive, it's just the opposite of the space that they need to kind of find their way together again. This is a family that desperately needs, you know, a warm, small, intimate space to where they can kind of a nest as it were <laughs> you know and uh, you know they need they need a nest and what they're given instead is this space that is utterly estranging and cold and this kind of at a counter purpose to what they're trying to do which is to come together as a family it makes it it's an impossible space for that to happen and maybe um, it's haunted i don't know there's no maybe it is maybe it is but uh but we've got a lot to talk about comparing this and uh, the ice storm. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between these two movies. He was a living, breathing animal and he died. No, we need to find out what killed him so I can sue her. You're not going to sue anyone. Uh, it's my money. I paid for it. I want answers. What did the vet say? I didn't call the vet. I just buried him. Oh, well, you really f***ed this up, didn't you? Maybe you really f- this up me. maybe you killed him by shipping him here he was probably hurt in the transport or maybe it's this poisonous f-ing house there's probably lead in the water there's nothing wrong with this house or the water everything is wrong with this house Th- it's horrible here no one is the same there's here nothing nothing wrong is the same with here this house you need to call the vet and get him out here well you weren't here so you don't get a say and now it's done no i was working late making money for us for us for us it's not for us It's so you can go to fancy parties and tell people we have horses. It's so you can tell people that your son goes to the best school. You're a poor kid pretending to be rich and you don't give a f*** about anybody but yourself. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And I think they have quite a bit in common. We were sort of flying blind on this one because we had, we just heard, you know, The Nest came out of Sundance with a pretty strong reputation. We loved Martha Marcy Marlene, it seemed like a good one for us to do. And and then we were kind of reading up on interviews and things that kind of suggest a pairing. And, and uh, The Shining was our original choice, which would have worked. I think we could have made that work. But when I actually watched The Nest, it was like, whoa, this has so much in common with the ice storm. Uh, maybe you would disagree. Maybe this is just me bringing two films together that don't belong. But I'm going to make the start to make the case here with the relationship between period values and family values, because I think that is such the core issue in both movies. With the ice storm, we have a family that is poised in this very uncomfortable spot between a more socially conservative time where you are expected to have this sort of traditional family of four in the suburbs. And then, you know, this counterculture that is now infiltrating this same scenario in, in ways that are contradictory and, and intrusive and destructive and tragic. And, and here in The Nest, I think you see the values of the 1980s, the sort of greed is good era, the era of deregulation, the era of, you know, slick bullshitters like Rory 
having the same effect and this expectation of what a family is supposed to be in the 80s of upward mobility you know in in all of the things that it takes to move these rungs forward on the social ladder having you know a fairly devastating impact on the family so i felt like both films are dramas that express in their core something about the eras i mean there's no there's a reason they're set when they're set oh yeah yeah for sure i mean like the i did not make the connection to the ice storm the moment you brought it up is like oh yeah of course right down to the to the final shot really it's it's very much you know using that film as, as a as a touchstone but I think the shift to the 80s does make a, a huge difference is that we're not talking – we're kind of like talking about the pendulum swinging in the entirely other direction where it's not about – personal liberation it's all about materialism and you know it's the you know Jude Law's character is one sh- uh, step short of Patrick Bateman with like he's naming off name brands and rhapsodizing over uh, career arcs versus the actual virtue of, of uh, artistic value of anything it's very smart about the, the time uh, without I don't think lay, laying it on too thick I think it's even a little the period detail is all really good but I think it's even a little less in your face than the ice storm uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to be more in your face than the ice storm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad we didn't end up doing The Shining because uh, I like I can see the parallels in terms of you know a family moving to a distant estate and slowly driving each other insane, and uh, an aspirational father slowly losing it. But uh, the comparison I think would have been a little shallow compared to these two, and uh, the the period detail in part is what makes this. I do think it's fundamentally about two eras where the pretense was about completely different things. You know, the pretense of sexual liberation and and freedom versus the pretense of uh, being rich and just really visibly so, like visibly enjoying your wealth seem very different on the surface. But I think it's interesting that both of these films are really fundamentally about keeping up pretenses, keeping up images for the neighbors, you know, (laughs) making sure that everybody around you knows that you're in on the thing, the thing that is important, the thing that everybody agrees is the thing we should be going for right now. We definitely are part of it and have that thing and are very good at it. And deep unhappiness and satisfaction underneath that pretense. It's almost as if both films are are fundamentally saying, like, maybe you should go for what you want instead of what you think your neighbors think you should want. Though there is, I think, an element of the nest where Rory is trying to break ground, you know, (laughs) where he's trying to import a way of doing business and an attitude that is very American into a culture that is ends up being inhospitable to that style right and what he encounters is this old boss who he can't who just won't bend to his will who just won't accept the kind of you know big deals that he wants to make because that's not what british corporate culture at the time is not where american corporate culture at the time is and so rory ends up being a a little bit of a fish out of water even though he's returning home didn't see the film underlining that aspect of it nearly as much as I saw it underlining the degree to which he's lazy. You know, that he wants to be the big picture guy who schmoozes and glad hands and tells lies about the theater uh, and shakes the hands. And he wants somebody else to work out the piddly little unimportant details, like who gets what part of the company, how many people get fired, and what the company looks like afterward. Mm -hmm. I mean, the point that his boss makes to him 
isn't like England doesn't work like this yet. Like you didn't read the details. You didn't read the contracts. You didn't look at what they were asking. You don't realize what you're asking me to give up here. And like his skewering of Rory fits so well into what we've seen of Rory so far. It's far more damning than anything that we've, we've really seen about him. Uh, But it, uh, as a result, it just feels more accurate. I'm not sure that the ice storm has that kind of reveal about any of the characters. I feel like we learn things that become very important in understanding why specific people are frauds or why they want what they want or what they really want and aren't showing us. I'm thinking more than anything of the moment where Sigourney Weaver like curls up alone in the center of the waterbed and what she's feeling and thinking like during that period. Mm -hmm. But we don't have anybody to come along and, and analyze her character out loud for us in the same kind of way we get in the nest. And I think that's an interesting storytelling choice is just the degree to which we might not fully understand how badly Roy has mismanaged things while going after like the thing that the eighties told him to go after how badly his character fits with that overarching ambition. So what, what about also, uh, you know, another connection between these movies are, are the little neglectorinos in both, <laughs> both of these families. So as their parents are off doing what they're doing, I mean, I guess that Allison in, in the nest, you know, stays home a little bit, but she certainly doesn't seem to be having a lot of time with the children. They are kind of left to do whatever they're going to do. And that, of course, leads to pretty dangerous and consequential things happening to these kids who are who are not well managed or well cared for i think to me the biggest parallel there was between the teen girls uh wendy Mm -hmm. and the ice storm and samantha in the nest and i think it's really interesting that sam is really just kind of doing exactly what her father's doing she's trying to fit in she's trying to give off an image she wants to be seen as the cool girl she has no experience with drugs but she wants to be seen as the girl that's comfortable with that anyway she wants them to like her so she steals money in order to let them sell drugs she lets them use her house even though they express their utter contempt of it she just wants to kind of give off a lifestyle that she isn't really feeling entirely but wendy's rebellion her her way of acting out is so much more private like in a way she's also doing exactly what the adults are doing she's chasing if not sex exactly sort of pre-sex i guess like the idea of sex that she can handle at her age Mm. but in the same sort of way at the same sort of time she's not doing it the same way they are. She's kind of seeking after a connection, an emotional and uh, physical connection, but it, it ends up being much more chaste and much more quiet and much more personal than what Sam's going after. You know, Sam ends up miserable and vomiting and passing out in the middle of her own party. But Wendy seems to kind of get what she wants, which is just this quiet moment alone with somebody who kind of seems to worship her. In a way, it almost feels like of all of the people in all of these movies, she comes closest to actually achieving satisfaction. (laughs) in a weird sort of uncomfortable way she definitely succeeds at playing awesome music all the time tip of the hat to her you know one of the other though connections to me with the kids though would be benjamin in the nest and toby mcguire's character in the ice storm in the sense that these are boys who are basically warehoused 
in fancy schools <laughs> without mm-hmm. any care about w- whether they're they belong there, whether they're happy there at all. You know, it, you know, and, and of course Benjamin ends up being incredibly lonely and unhappy, and then having to say at the dinner table that he's not. Uh, when we realize he is, and anytime, really, both anytime, both of those children are dropped off at school, it's like nobody goes there. It's almost like dropping <laughs> them off at some sort of. You never see any other kid. I mean, because they're late, it takes because it, it takes the mother forever. I think probably to to get up in the morning and then have to drive all the way to drop both of them off, so they're constantly late. But although that might be another extra textual, again, I would be curious to know whether that that's basically whether they could populate we, the schools. We could not afford, uh, you know, two hundred extras in period school uniform costume was just going to cost too much. So we only shot on Saturday when nobody was there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but we we could pay a lot less. It, and, and just it like, makes you dramatic know, sense, though. No, of course it makes dramatic sense. I just, again, I wonder if that was a story choice driven by practicalities because it it just feels so much like it. it. It goes to good places, like the whole lateness thing, leaving the two kids like even more feeling neglected and feeling out of place with their peers. Yeah, it, it fits. It's just it's a choice that I'm I'm really betting there was a reason for. You spend all that money on uh, horse corpses, and you know you can't oh. you can't pay extras. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. <laughs> How many horse corpses do you need, Keith? Uh, I, was it a real corpse? You may, they had to fabricate imagine. a corpse. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows, who's who's to say? It's like those do we, CGI do sheep and exactly. So another thing that came to mind when I was watching the nest that kind of connected it to the ice storm was that both films kind of end in these sort of dark night of the soul sequences where all of the characters are off kind of freelancing a bit you know in various you know semi-dangerous calamitous ways and then they kind of come together at the very end did that strike you as well that particular way of ending these movies is quite similar oh yeah it feels like the same ending yeah yeah, I mean, down to the final shot. I, I, I will say I think the ice storm does it better. I think all these individual scenes are, are pretty great. That the cab scene and the dance, the dance club scene for uh, Allison and so on. But I, I, I think there's a poetry to the way they're, the, these moments are connected in the ice storm that's just not quite there uh, in the nest. It's interesting to me because I, I think the two endings do have kind of separate, same emotion, same construction, different directions. I feel like what we're seeing in the ice storm might be the last moment before this family tries harder to communicate and comes closer together as a result of tragedy, as human beings so often do. And what we might be seeing in the nest is the last peaceful moment that this family has together before the parents split up and start fighting about uh, what country they're going to live in separately from each other and who's going to get the kids and when. Like, But couldn't the opposite just... also be true? Couldn't each imagined uh, postscript apply to either of these families, though? Given the arcs of the stories, I would say not. But given just the contents of those scenes themselves, uh, I would say yes. Okay. I, I don't know that there's anything blatant in either of those closing scenes that says we're definitely getting a divorce or we're, we're definitely fixing this. It's a pause for a pregnant moment. Like I, I've been kind of obsessed with this idea for her a long time that there are an awful lot of dramas in particular that end on the last good moment, like the mm. maybe the last good moment that this character is ever going to have. You're welcome to the dollhouses, essentially, you know, heavy, sad movies that end with like a little bit of lightness that you can choose to see as the beginning of a new direction 
or because of so much of the narrative pile up and a sense of like specifically things to come in future. I think submarine ends this way as well. What you might be seeing is like the last moment of like levity or comfort this character maybe is ever going to get. That's a good connection to the shining too. No, maybe not. <sighs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think though in both the ice storm and the nest, if you're going to read some hopefulness in the denouement, of both of those films, it's that all of the characters have been through something and have been humbled by it, you know, and that they all come together at the end, a little wrung out and looking weirdly more, you know, like a family than they have at other points during the movie, just because it's just, they, you know, and they're almost in a mood, I think, to be more forgiving in that sense of just like, the the rage that Rory and Allison might feel about Sam having this huge, messy party while they're away, they can kind of forgive that in a way that they would not have been able to under other circumstances. Because they've, you know, I think there's a almost tacit understanding in both movies that they're all going through something and they're all kind of recognizing that they're all going through something. And maybe there's a little bit of hope in that recognition. Yeah. Elena finding her daughter in bed, like naked with this younger boy kind of has the exact same feeling of under other circumstances. This is something I might completely freak out about or go ballistic about, or just be very upset with you about. And as it is, there's so many things in crisis right now. Like all I can do is recognize that you also are going through something. I think it's interesting that both films use literal night and day as part of that symbolism. Both of these films end with a very long, torturous night for everybody concerned, kind of coming to a point of relief when day breaks, when morning comes and the light comes again. And they all kind of have to look around themselves, given what happened the previous night, and take stock of of who they are and what they're going to do next. Yeah. So anything else that we should uh, get into uh, with these movies? A symbolism, maybe? Well, I put on the uh, on our connections list uh, over the top symbolism, but I, I do feel like we've kind of I've made that connection. I've I've brought it up, like the the literal uh, beating on a dead horse, the, the burial <laughs> of the giant rotting mistake that she has to dig up with her hands to uh, to emotion next to. Yeah, yeah, and it surfaces by itself. It's very buried child. All of that seems. Just way too much. The ice storm, uh, where every everything is uh, shut down and and frozen, and then it has to slowly thaw. <laughs> well, the, just, I, the, yeah, the ice lot. as a metaphor is really, really hit hard for sure. Wait, wait, ice is a metaphor? <laughs> oh dear. Uh, nobody tell him that uh, it's also a metaphor in The Shining. I, I don't. I don't think he can handle it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of very raw imagery going on in both of these films uh, to agree that I personally found maybe a wee bit laughable. Yeah. Well, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, but I, but I, I think you could say that, that they both could have dialed it back just a little bit and not, <laughs> not have uh, suffered too much. But I mean, it's almost just a matter of just degrees. I mean, because it's okay to have, you know, certain visual symbols or symbolic moments in, in the movie and but you know you repeat them too often or you emphasize them too strenuously and it becomes an issue i think a connection between these films that i found a lot more both interesting and and maybe worth talking about in some detail is just the breaking points that we see with different characters i mean to some degree the long dark night of the soul 
centers around the mother, uh, the woman in both couples coming to just a fundamental place of I can't anymore and mm-hmm. acting out in uh, like a fairly big way. And for Allison in The Nest, it's such a big break. You know, she undermines her husband in front of important clients. She storms out. She gives away her fur coat. She goes and gets drunk and dances in public. She has a complete and utter breakdown of her dead horse. Like, it's all very big and external. And for Joan Allen's character in The Ice Storm, it's a much more internal thing of just getting more and more rigid and more and more angry and more and more taking control to the point where she ends up with her friend's husband in the car for a a furtive and very miserable looking uh, act of fumbling that doesn't really go anywhere. But in both cases, what we're seeing is somebody just repressing and repressing and repressing and then eventually just blowing up, but blowing up in kind of a personal way that ends up expressing a lot about who they are, like what's wrong with them and what's wrong with their relationship. But it's just, it's a very opposite direction kind of uh, kind of thing for these two movies. I found that pretty interesting. Here's a point of contrast while we're talking about things that do differently is is uh, Rory and Allison have a really intense sex life, which is it yeah. puts them at odds from everyone else in the ice storm. And there's a really explicit sex scene that seems to be there in part to show how control tips between the two of them. It's, it's a really interesting scene. I wonder what you made of that. That's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. Like – it shows them as reasonably compatible. It's not like a beautiful romantic simultaneous orgasm kind of thing. It's like how sex actually is. Like there's a certain amount of give and take and a certain amount of them both cooperating and working together and kind of like seeking their own pleasure. I I thought it was, I don't know, I sometimes tune out a little during uh, sex scenes, particularly sex scenes where you see a lot of the woman and not much of the man, because I always just feel like that's in there for a certain segment of the audience. But this in particular seemed like it was there to remind us that this isn't a Kevin Klein, Joan Allen couple who don't touch each other anymore. Like the domesticity that we see in a lot of their interactions where he's coming along and waking her up with coffee in the morning so she can go take the kids to school or whatever. That isn't the sum total of their relationship. Like they do still have a personal, like lively connection that isn't entirely based on repression or frustration with each other. You need some thread that connects them in some way that you need need some evidence that they would even be able to make this dramatic move together, this fifth move (laughs) in 10 years or something that, that they have some chemistry. And so maybe that, you know, turns up and surely definitely the only sex scene in these two movies that uh, isn't utterly miserable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Ice Storm is like next level. It's just that horrible horrible scene with <laughs> with elena and uh jamie sheridan's character and uh the ice storm in the car is just like oh all just uh, this sad you know apology filled sad short apology filled affair that's just jamie sheridan's how it goes really in good in that in ice storm we didn't really talk about him he's like a minor player yeah but I really enjoy that performance, like where he is on the screen. You really do get a sense of just like every frame he's in, you can kind of feel the sadness and regret coming off of him. Yeah. And we talked a little about how differently that film plays to us now than it did more than 20 years ago. I think the biggest change I felt was just in seeing that 
relationship uh, when I was much younger as like a very uh, the graduate kind of he's a like alien and I don't know anything about him. And uh, she's kind of a harlot, you know, a scarlet woman. And watching it as an adult, it's just so clear that she's sad and lonely, but she really does love her husband. You know, she doesn't want to make small talk with uh, Kevin Klein's character. She doesn't want to connect with anybody else. She actually is yearning for her actual husband who is a premature ejaculator and seems to be very awkward and embarrassed about it and travels a lot and is just not there for her. And again, I don't think the movie really points fingers about either of them. I don't think it says it's either of their fault. I think, again, they're just not communicating and they're not there for the kids and they're not there for each other and they're not happy and they're not talking about why. You know, the thing that maybe frustrated me most about The Nest was that just initial leap directly to fighting with each other. But in some ways, it almost feels like we learn a lot more about the characters a lot faster from them just tearing at each other. You know, you mm. said you said this and now you're breaking your promise. Well, you should do this if you were a good wife, but you don't. But what we have in the ice storm instead over and over is just this – I'm not going to express what I actually want. Maybe I don't know what I actually want. Maybe somebody else can tell me what I actually want. And like all of the the frustration and hunger and dissatisfaction that comes with that. The Nest and the Ice Storm are currently available to rent on the usual streaming services. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So obviously, you know, I want to I make a connection between The Ice Storm or, or The Nest, and particularly The Ice Storm. So I'm going to go with uh, a George Romero horror film uh, called <laughs> Season of the Witch, um, which, uh, bear with me here. Uh, this is one of the films he made between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And it really is an uncannily good connection with the ice storm. It is uh, from released in 1973, set in suburban Pittsburgh, and really the milieu is much the same. Not as uh, quite as moneyed as the New Canaan, Connecticut, but it is about a uh, dissatisfied wife who kind of, you know, the way instead of connecting to the bits of the counterculture of, of uh, sexual liberation and, and and so on, she kind of falls into the element of the counterculture that turned to the occult and uh, takes up witchcraft. And I won't say more than that. Uh, it is, you know, it's it, there's some rough edges to this one. Uh, he didn't really didn't have much of a budget. Uh, it, it didn't get, it got a weird release. It came out like packaged kind of like a, a porn film called Hungry Wives in some markets. But um, it is really worth your time to seek out. It was on Criterion Channel as part of their 70s horror film selection, which I think is no longer on the site. But um, I know it's floating around out there there somewhere, also known as Jack's Wife. But it's most commonly seen now as, as Season of the Witch. Uh, in Romero films, the acting can be hit or miss, but but uh, it's got a really nice lead performance by, of an actress named Jan White, who I don't think did much else besides that. But uh, uh, again, it's sort of like the ice storm as it happened, but with uh, witchcraft. So uh, yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's that's really cool. I, you know, I've never never seen that one at all. So, uh, I, was it a part of the seventies? I should have, uh, if it was on there, I should have checked it out. Was it, it might have been. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. It's it, it's a lot of his films' rights issues are an, are a thing. But uh, yeah, and then sometimes they're just not at all. You can see 
Night of the Living Dead in any possible <laughs> format at any, well, any time, it seems. Yeah, and widely varying qualities. Yeah, of, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, so not to be confused with uh, the, the Nicolas Cage film, Season of the Witch, or Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, although I do quite enjoy Halloween uh, 3, Season of the Witch. It looks like it is currently available on, uh, it's still Sarah and on Criterion Channel. Uh, it looks like it's on Prime, Tubi, Shudder. So yeah, you can you can find this film fairly easily. It might be under the name Hungry Wives, but look for it. It's worth your time. <laughs> Great. Uh, <laughs> Hungry Wives? Yeah, Hungry Wives. Or Jack's Wife, also known as Jack's Wife. Tasha, what about you? Uh, you guys, I've been watching so little stuff lately, and uh, the only excuse I have is that I've been reading instead, but this is not a podcast about books. I've just, my attention span has been shot lately with uh, a lot of the things going on. So <laughs> I have watched pretty much nothing new. I'm just going to take this space to point out that a movie that I loved back in 2018 and talked up and recommended on this uh, very podcast, I believe, um, Prospect, the first film of of uh, Z Girl and Christopher Caldwell. I think I saw it at South by Southwest. It was either South by Southwest or Sundance in 2018. And at like at the time I I talked it up, it eventually came out on VOD. It was you know, rentable, uh, I guess, but ne- just never made the splash that I wanted it to make. It's a very, very indie uh, little science fiction film about a girl and her father on an alien planet trying to strike it rich. And it does actually, I suppose, fit in reasonably well with the theme here in that there's just there's such an air to it of uh, difficulty in communication uh, between generations, between uh, father and daughter, between somebody with ambition and desire and somebody who doesn't share those feelings and the direction that it all goes. But it's just a really exquisite little slice of world building. It's a, a really well-nuanced and well-textured film. It's incredibly well acted. Uh, Pedro Pascal, who, you know, we're watching all the time in The Mandalorian now and uh, J2 Plus and uh, just a really amazing performance from Sophie Thatcher as the young girl at the heart of it all. It's definitely a film like I'm kind of looking over the letterboxed ratings now and like other critics and people I know who have seen it. I I think I may be alone in how much I love this movie or if not alone, like relatively isolated. Uh, But it just it always just really struck me as an incredible example of what a handful of people with a lot of ingenuity and a lot of devotion to to craft and world building could make with very little money and relatively little time, relatively few resources. And it's on Netflix now, which makes it way more accessible than it's ever been. Netflix keeps investing in these uh, teeny tiny little science fiction movies, the way that it used to pick up on every documentary under the sun, and uh, just kind of slap it on there to to populate the site. They seem to be doing that now with like micro budgeted science fiction. And there's some really good stuff there as a result. But I'm just really excited that more people are going to see Prospect. This is one of those films, like The Fall, like Brigsby Bear, that I've rattled on, like the nines, that I've rattled on excessively mm-hmm. over the years. And as a result, I've had just a teeny tiny trickle of people coming back to me to say, I saw this film because you wouldn't shut up about it. Thank you so much for it. Uh, I want Prospect to be one of those films. I, I just want it to be a film that like film lovers that art house lovers that's uh like lovers of independent cinema and weird offbeat like little projects uh keep coming and seeing so yeah prospect it's on netflix now 
Oh, okay. Always, uh, if you're at home, which you, of course you are, a good prospect <laughs> for you, right? Oh, Scott, I don't know. Thank you for the boost, but boo for the pun. <laughs> I don't know where that lands. <laughs> Sorry about that. Scott, you, above all people, I would think should watch Prospect as a uh, a dad dealing with a daughter, like hitting, hitting that age. I think this is going to hit oh, in God. the feels. Help me. But in the meantime, hit us in the fields uh, with what you got. What's okay. uh, what's good for you? Uh, so I, I, I'll tell a little bit of a story. So my first encounter with Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate was reading the book, the Stephen Bach book, Final Cut, which is one of the really great books about uh, the making of a movie. And this is, Stephen Bach was an executive uh, United Artists when they produced Heaven's Gate and it bankrupted or came close to bankrupting the studio uh, because you know they just it was this money pit with Chimino making this grand you know historical western vision out out um in i guess wyoming i think it was he was shooting any case Uh so um and it it just tells the whole story of these incredible expenses and you know 300 or five minute long cuts and things like that and so my experience of the film was framed that way and it was also framed by me watching the film afterwards you know in the what would have been the theatrical cut which is like 141 minutes long absolutely butchered you know and on vhs etc so my opinion of it was entirely dictated by Stephen bach (laughs) i think and now of course it has enjoyed a little bit of critical reappreciation there's a criterion edition i rewatched it recently um because i've been i've been kind of on a jeff bridges kick and so I saw for the first time the 219-minute version of it. It is flawed, <laughs> you know, and especially in the second half. It kind of loses its grip. But it's so powerful and so much a vision, you know, of American studio filmmaking that just doesn't exist anymore. And I guess this it was the end of it in a way. This is the end of the, you know, official end, I guess, of the auteur era of hollywood where you just let grand visionaries go off and do whatever they're going to do but i think that this story about a time and a place when poor immigrants trying to make their way in america are set up for the slaughter by well-to-do white guys who happen to you know who who are able to wrangle the forces of the of the government and whatever on their side to carry out this um, massacre. I mean, it's just it's it feels like such a fundamentally American story, and it's and it's rendered with incredible beauty and detail. And uh, it, and in a way, it gets lost in the in that stuff. I mean, it, it feels like a production that's gotten out of hand, even in this longer and more cohesive cut you know the second half in particular just seems like an endless <laughs> battle like endless fight uh, you know uh, um scenes of, of shooting but boy there's some sequences and scenes in the film that are stunning and uh yeah so i mean i think keith you know, you're, you're somewhat less sold on the movie if no, i recall i think you're, you're kind of laying out i don't think we're too far apart on this because i i think for me what ultimately did the movie end for me is is that is that final sequence which just goes on for forever long mm-hmm. after we've kind of lost interest in in the consequences or, or fates of these of these characters which i feel like the characters themselves are never as fully de- it's been a long time but i feel like the characters themselves are never as fully developed as you want them to uh, to be 
their stand-ins for bigger things than the characters themselves. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but but there's there, it's gorgeous stuff in this movie. Like the opening sequence that is is, is Harvard is it Harvard or or, or where's, yeah, where's, it's a, it's Harvard. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean that stuff is is amazing and and uh, the you know the way it's the way the it's roller shot. skating. Sequences, uh, yes, the unreal, and just a lot of the landscapes there too. I mean, Chimino uh, yes. was from Wyoming, so he's kind of like telling the story of the place from whence he whence he came, and in, in mm-hmm. some ways, Vilma Zygmunt shot it, and it's just one of those, you know, just oh. one of those. <laughs> yeah, know? no, I mean, you know, uh, in a way, in a way, uh, there's a piece of it that's kind of like all better done in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and yeah. which is also a Zygmunt film, but um, it's 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 good, and I and I actually watched uh, um. Chimino's uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot for the first time again. Yeah, that one I like. I like that movie a lot more. That actually. is so much fun. Yeah, it's a good movie. And, and again, yeah, but but shooting in that location, God, it's so great. It makes this kind of like, you know, fun buddy action movie come to life to just to have the such a sumptuous backdrop. And uh, I don't know. I just think I. I but it, it did. But I think my the bottom line with Heaven's Gate though is and i think this is true of ishtar this is true of some other you know famous failures is that is that that end up that have merit is that we allow the stories about about the making of these movies you know the the to set the narrative Mm -hmm. for just to frame how we're supposed to actually respond to them and you know i mean you know you have i mean heaven's gate is considered you know is synonymous with failure and the movie itself is not a failure. It just isn't. It's got yeah, no, too I'm, much. I'm it's, got to too, it's, it's got too many things going for it that are that that are. Unde- I thought. I think undeniable. I'm glad to see it's been rescued from just sort of infamy because I think it. I think it's a flawed film, but I think it's really worth seeing. And, and it's and it's certainly a um, as a moment in filmmaking history. It's it's remarkable that way. I mean, I think I think another one for as far as that goes. Another imperfect film that I that I kind of love is is that was overwhelmed by bad press is, is one from the heart, uh, which I think is kind of the the true end of of seventies auteurism. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually yeah. arrived in 1982. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Apocalypse Now would have been that, except it kind of, it kind of so, turned. I think it turned you, things around. By, yeah, it worked. If it hadn't, if it hadn't won the Palm or something, maybe, maybe that would have been I the mean, same situation. They, you know, uh, Coppola could have lost his, lost his house. <laughs> he put his, yeah. he put everything up for that one, uh, and it, it's a bet that paid off. Unlike some later bets. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you try. So that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out December 1st and 8th. Keith, what's coming up next? For our next episodes, we'll be talking about one of the greatest films ever made in a movie about one of the men who made it. First up, it's Citizen Kane. Maybe you've heard of it. It's Orson Welles' not-that-thrilling-disguised take on the life of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. It's the story of a man who gains the power to steer the nation, but at what cost? Then we'll bring in Mank. The latest from David Fincher, a consideration of the life of Herman Mankiewicz, the drunken wit with a compulsive gambling habit and a sensitive heart, tapped by Wells to pen the screenplay to Kane. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Nest, The Ice Storm, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor over at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. 
Keith, what about you? I'm a freelance writer. I write a bunch of different places. You can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. You can find my work in places like Vulture and The Ringer. I uh, recently had a, a piece in uh, uh, GQ, uh, in Rolling Stone, Polygon even, uh, um, and uh, got a review of a, of a Nicolas Cage movie in there somehow. TV Guide. You know, I, I'm writing all over the place these days, guys. Uh, wow. Scott, how, how about you? Dazzling. Um, okay, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at uh, the New York Times, uh, The Ringer, uh, Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine publications. And then, of course, you can find our uh, producer and frequent co-host, Genevieve Kosky. You can find her on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky, and she is the TV editor of Vulture. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan, the Bake Jakes, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. In all the places I had lived, I never been at home. And almost all the friends I've loved, a number.